Section six of the Spirit of American Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Peary. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. Section six. Hawthorne. Literature in its romantic mood, that is, humanity in its romantic mood, looks at life with its eyes focused on distant visions the foreground of actuality is blurred when the vision is strong it sees more beautiful things than the sharpest perception of realism can find in the immediate spectacle which it strives to penetrate for then romanticism is poetry romance takes great risks when it succeeds its triumph is supreme all men come under its spell and the most sullen realist cannot deny it when its vision is weak it is the most lamentable falsifier its eye is dissolute and drunken and it is cried out upon by honesty and intellectual courage the romantic looking beyond life turns in two directions either to a timeless land that never can exist or to a past that never did exist the typical expression of modern romance is the historical novel in which the unwarranted fundamental assumption is that life was once more interesting than it is now taking a few picturesque historic facts for its ground cloth romance embroiders pretty pictures at will childishly indifferent to fact realism says i will draw my neighbor's soul romance says i will draw the soul of some person who lived long ago and was more entertaining than my neighbor or i will draw some aspect of soul that never was in human shape some twist of mind terrible fantastic or sheerly beautiful both methods are good when they are adopted by powerful writers but romance has been so abused in english fiction of the nineteenth century that some of us are heartily tired of it and there are few modern romancers who still hold us hawthorne is one of the few if his work is not great it is at least sincere beautiful free from false notes fragile amid the stronger geniuses of his age yet thoroughly manly and dignified he is a born romancer consistent and never in doubt as to what he was trying to do writing it seems at least in his earlier years to please himself he shrinks from life personally he is shy and secluded though not so morbid as to brawnier natures he may appear his artistic imagination as fine a gift as was ever bestowed on any man except the great poets is baffled even wounded by the rougher human facts amid which he passes his life the sketch of the custom-house which introduces the scarlet letter is so shrewdly realistic that it roused some local resentments but it is quite singular in his work he wrote little else in the same spirit his notebooks of travel contain some clear flashes of present reality yet for the most part they offer the obverse side of the romantic imagination its disillusion its sadness for dreams unfulfilled so strongly does this mood of sensitive chagrin express itself in his reflections on english life 
that hawthorne most modest and gentlest of men who looked upon social conditions at home and abroad with melancholy indifference was thought by some of our british cousins to have made a yankee attack on the mother country hawthorne himself was puzzled that anyone should attach weight to his opinions which are so lacking in any spirit of aggression or even of analysis he was recording moods he was aloof from the english just as he was aloof from yankees and southerners the quarrel between the american states merely deepened his gravity and filled him with silent unhappiness for the political grapplings of the time he had neither mind nor heart neither on one side nor on the other of that great conflict which shook the souls of his contemporaries did he say anything which is now worth remembering the accidents of friendship enlisted his literary competence to write a campaign biography of franklin pierce it is as if shelley had been college chum of some british statesman and had written whatever it is in england that corresponds to american campaign biographies in the preface of the marble fawn hawthorne says italy as the site of this romance was chiefly valuable to him as affording a sort of poetic or fairy precinct where actualities would not be so terribly insisted upon as they are and must needs be in america no author without a trial can conceive the difficulty of writing a romance about a country where there is no shadow no antiquity no mystery no picturesque and gloomy wrong nor anything but a commonplace prosperity in broad and simple daylight as is happily the case with my dear native land mr henry james seems to accept hawthorne's view that his limitations were objective and that he might have done greater work if he had lived somewhere else when mr james wrote his excellent little book he had exchanged one provincialism for another in the pursuit of his own literary career and this explains perhaps why he presses the idea that america was not rich in material for the maker of stories his list of things which america did not have wherewith to stimulate the literary imagination leaves his dear native land more shiveringly naked than does hawthorne's own complaint of his country's romantic poverty it is not strange that hawthorne's temperament should be dissatisfied with the life about him but it is strange that mr james a confirmed realist and analytic critic should not see that the dissatisfaction was due to the nature of hawthorne's genius that he did not depend on his environment or make full use of it for the most part he simply ignored it he liked what no country in any era presents in the daylight glare of actuality naturally one fond of haunted castles ghosts and unearthly mysteries does not seek them on broadway new york which is two hundred years old nor yet on the strand in london which is a thousand years old he seeks them in his mind and in written legend the only places where they exist every society new or old is rich in shadows tragedies picturesque and gloomy wrongs as old as adam the true novelist sees these contrasts these terrible depths and makes stories of them but not the romancer of any race or age whose favorite haunt is a fairy precinct 
in one mood hawthorne evidently feels that in contemporaneous and local society there is abundant material for one who can improve it for in the house of the seven gables he says apropos of holgrave a romance on the plan of gil blas adapted to american society and manners would cease to be a romance the experience of many individuals among us who think it hardly worth the telling would equal the vicissitudes of the spaniard's earlier life while their ultimate success or the point whither they tend may be incomparably higher than any that a novelist would imagine for his hero however that may be it is not true that hawthorne lacked materials or that he suffered for want of literary surroundings as mr james seems to think he did not prospect the wealth that lay at his door and after success crowned his efforts he was solitary from choice in a society that had a not inconsiderable cluster of distinguished poets and essayists fields had to seek him and coax his manuscript from him the memoirs of the charming circle at concord show that all respected him but none was intimate with him he was a wanderer in dreams he felt life to be stark and flat and deceived by the story-book pictures of europe he hoped like many american youths to find a greater world across the sea but when he really saw europe he was disappointed the marble fawn does not reveal the action of a starved imagination finding at last the abundant beauty it had yearned for but is curiously cold colder than the scarlet letter hawthorne carried his climate with him his skies are neither american nor italian until biography reminds you of it you do not think of hawthorne as a new englander hindered or enriched by the geographic soil of his being he held his universe in his head and was all too little impressed by the parts of the external universe in which the collateral records show him to have worked married and had his house that his clear eye was able to see momentous realities when he chose to look at them is shown by such a remark as that in our old home where speaking of british poverty and wealth he says is or is not the system wrong that gives one married pair so immense a superfluity of luxurious home and shuts a million others from any home whatever one day or another safe as they deem themselves and safe as the hereditary temper of the people really tends to make them the gentlemen of england will be compelled to face this question the most analytic sociologist of the year eighteen fifty could not have put it more plainly more prophetically it is the problem which in this year of grace the gentlemen of england and america and other countries are being forced to face no other question equals it in the thought of our time and the best fiction of to-day is aware of it similar problems social contrasts teeming with ideas fit for the dramatic imagination to grasp and embody in art were present to hawthorne's eyes if his nature had led him to look at them the commonplace prosperity of his native land which he thought so cheerfully uninteresting was blotted with glooms and the country was in the throes of tremendously exciting moral and political wars but he who showed fine clarity of vision during the few moments when he opened his eyes to life 
and who expressed every idea he wished to express with perfect lucidity did not often face any question that we now conceive to have been crying out at him every day he shut himself up with spooks and queer quasi-psychological mysteries fictitious literary history is wont to regard hawthorne as the chronicler and poetic embodiment of the puritan spirit the puritans were gloomy and hawthorne was gloomy behold the assimilation is perfect the heredity is self-evident in sooth hawthorne was the least puritan of the new england writers the spirit the character the history of his puritan forefathers he did not know any better than he knew the history and characters of medieval italians whose palaces and dungeons he gazed on without much enthusiasm puritanism never produces art it kills art as well speak of a deaf violinist as of a puritan poet when milton is making poetry he is a pagan as puritan he either does not write or writes badly the puritan like any other human being can be made the subject of art but he himself is artistically barren and inarticulate the removal of puritan inhibitions was a necessary condition of the beginning of anything like art in new england and hawthorne was notably free from the spirit of puritanism he was as far removed as poe from any sort of ethical tradition that prevailed about him or that had prevailed before him indeed he was the only one of the new englanders who was purely artistic and this fact is fundamentally related to the other fact that he was the only new england man of letters who was not deeply moved by black slavery or any of the burning issues of the time he was interested in fanciful manifestations of the soul not in genuine ethical problems his home was fairyland and he was especially fain of haunted woods and treacherous bogs he approached the puritans just as he approached greek wonder tales the scarlet letter is in no sense a historical novel of puritan life any more than macbeth is a study of the early history of scotland the problem of conscience is not for hawthorne an aspect of the national mind or of the moral development of his dear native land it is a motive for story and legend to be wrought out in the purple colours of which he was master the soul suffering from remorse is creepy and fascinating and hawthorne plays with it as poe does and as stevenson does in markheim people will continue to regard hawthorne as the blossom of puritanism and to picture his handsomely melancholy face as a spiritual descendant of witch-hangers that is the cliche of the matter and it is in all the books but hawthorne fortunately was a mildly irreverent man charmed by the colours of things and somewhat sceptical of the intense beliefs of his contemporaries the theme of the scarlet letter appealed less to his moral sense than to his pictorial imagination he turned the symbol over and over and embroidered his story with it it is a red spot on a grey colonial dress it is a bloody brand on a man's breast it is a fiery portent in the sky hawthorne was enamoured of its hue and he designed it cunningly like a worker in tapestry 
against the tortured conscience of dimsdale and against chillingworth the skulking ghost of revenge they are two tones of blackish purple pearl is another color not a human child but a symbolized flower of sin a gem in the darkness what little bird of scarlet plumage may this be methinks i have seen just such figures when the sun has been shining through a richly painted window and tracing out the golden and crimson images across the floor art thou one of those naughty elves or fairies whom we thought to have left behind us with other relics of papistry in merry old england i am my mother's child answered the scarlet vision and my name is pearl pearl ruby rather or coral or red rose so speaks the old clergyman who was nurtured at the rich bosom of the english church and so speaks hawthorne the lover of pigments the story of hester is not poignantly tragic it is not even sentimentally pathetic like goethe's story of margaret hester prynne is a vaguely defined figure aloft on the place of shame she does not live in the real world of the reverend cotton mather his magnalia nor in the other real world of thomas hardy's tess the development of her character under suffering and the sweet influence of her child is an abstract idea beautifully suggested but not the growth of a human heart in the breast of a flesh-and-blood woman dimsdale is a voice a clerical garment a flat figure in a thin morality play not a man whose passion has overcome a woman the scarlet letter is a prose poem a development of the theme on a field sable the letter a gules to regard it as a novel of human character is to dissolve its enchantment as well look for character in the eve of st agnes or christabel or the fall of the house of usher each person in the story is a mood a tone chillingworth's approach is like a change of the weather a pervasive shadow darkening the sky dimsdale and the gloom of the forest blend not as a living man with nature but as a sad theme of music with sombre under harmonies so understood the scarlet letter is a perfect book no word no suggestion detail or scene but is set in its place with sure artistry hawthorne knew thoroughly the nature and the methods of his art he did not stumble into success but worked with his eyes open in the early years when he was practicing his craft without public recognition destroying some tales and sending others forth upon a sea of indifference he found out all there was to know about his capacities and he became as sophisticated as poe in the calculation of his effects in the preface of the house of the seven gables he has expressed finally the spirit and intention of his work and marked clearly the boundary between the adjacent realms of romance and novel that preface should be read as a general introduction to hawthorne's work his request that the book be read strictly as a romance having a great deal more to do with the clouds overhead than with any portion of the actual soil of the county of essex is applicable to all his stories the house of the seven gables begins in the tone of a novel is entered over a threshold of actuality 
the history of the house is told in a daylight matter-of-fact tone and the opening chapters about hepzibah and her shop about uncle venner and the little boy who bought the gingerbread seem less like the typically hawthornesque than like the work of the naturalistic sketchers of new england manners but after the realistic beginning the world becomes murky the lover of beauty clifford made imbecile by his sufferings haunts the house like a ghost the villain of the piece judge pinchian stalks in and out wearing a gloomy aura holgrave dabbles in hypnotism and practices his black art on the very hens in the yard through these shadows shine the bright but artificial beams of phoebe's cheerful innocence she is the pearl motive under a different name the plot is tenuous concealed papers opportunely discovered and enriching the oppressed and defrauded do not convince a reader whose fancy has been clarified by the sunny laugh of jane austen's northanger abbey hawthorne's genius however works wonders with outworn and primitive machinery and the kaleidoscopic pictures which Maul's well throws up are still potent to bewitch the eye the blithedale romance is the nearest to human life of all hawthorne's longer stories it is free from supernatural devices and the characters are human for once he found real romance or the foundation of it in actual life brook farm was itself romantic a society of dreamers whose extraordinary ideas and exceptional personalities set them apart from the normal world hawthorne does not portray brook farm he distinctly denies any intention to describe biographically that ephemeral oasis in the hard desert of the american commonwealth but the utopia was an actual thing it was instinctively poetic it was composed of persons of interesting minds who aspired in their way to a cloudland where hawthorne who had arrived by another route was already at home called in its time socialistic brook farm was of course not only remote from modern socialism but antithetic to it it is not easy to define it in terms that have changed their color in the course of a century of social projects and experiences the principles of brook farm were not exactly those of proudhon nor those of fourier but were in the air in more senses than one retreat from society for personal improvement is not socialistic it is selfish with no immoral implication it is excessive individualism and is as old as oriental eremitism the brook farmers sought a better mode of life for themselves and a few friends they did not understand or attempt to study the structure of society as a whole they helped nobody to a permanent living they added not a jot to our knowledge of economics except to confirm the truth which fifty experiments have taught that small philanthropic communities cannot leaven the economic mass the failure of brook farm was due to its nescience of the individual and social bread-and-butter problem which is the basis of life its value lay in the stimulating association of interesting people which is in the long run never a complete failure for it has the function of an informal university when one intense mind lives with another intellectual sparks fly 
the collapse of brook farm contains a real lesson which was rather pathetically ignored by the participants whose mental reaction was that of disillusion and disappointment heaven had failed therefore there was no heaven or it was somewhere else it is remarkable how little clear candid record of the experiment the chief actors have left us there are some pleasant reminiscences and biographies there are some satirical reflections but the whole history of the undertaking is veiled as if failure had made the fine-souled and sensitive partners reluctant to talk no very memorable idea no precious bit of literature flowered from brook farm except the blithedale romance written by one who was in it but not of it hawthorne the most unfit man in new england for communistic association of any sort visited brook farm a gracious slightly sardonic shadow observed said little and went his way with a book in his head he is pictured by some one who was there as sitting astride a chair listening with a flickering smile to an intense argument on the whole duty of man or some other inclusive topic he contributed nothing to the discussion but his ears were open and his eyes dreamy but very clear were taking in the scene here before him was romance the strange inhuman character the unworldly in the world here were people of vigorous personality eccentric shaded with lines not seen upon the common face of man once in his life he was having a genuine experience satisfying to his romantic imagination through the poet coverdale past the age of warmest enthusiasm and gifted with a delicate humor hawthorne tells his story the best most varied most persuasively human of his books it is full of a tender sympathy for the dreams of man the dreamer who wrote it responded to other dreamers and it is hewed with a spirit found nowhere else in hawthorne's fiction a fine irony the soul of new england common sense but of common sense reserved and tender unwilling to break the spell the talk in the book is excellent the best in hawthorne's work the characters are intelligent and full of ideas and therefore their talk while preserving the natural accents of human speech can be kept at a high intellectual pitch not only the talk but hawthorne coverdale's reflections have a sharp edge the romancer is for once a sharp commentator on humanity there is in hawthorne a more thoughtful humorist than is glimpsed through the unhuman moods of his other books two passages illustrate this unusual aspect of his mind would that it had revealed itself oftener the peril of our new way of life was not lest we should fail in becoming practical agriculturists but that we should probably cease to be anything else while our enterprises lay all in theory we had pleased ourselves with delectable visions of the spiritualization of labor it was to be our form of prayer and ceremonial of worship each stroke of the hoe was to uncover some aromatic root of wisdom heretofore hidden from the sun pausing in the field to let the wind exhale the moisture from our foreheads we were to look upward and catch glimpses into the far-off soul of truth in this point of view matters did not turn out quite so well as we anticipated 
it is very true that sometimes gazing casually around me out of the midst of my toil i used to discern a richer picturesqueness in the visible scenes of earth and sky there was at such moments a novelty an unwonted aspect on the face of nature as if she had been taken by surprise and seen at unawares with no opportunity to put off her real look and assume the mask with which she mysteriously hides herself from mortals but this was all the clods of earth which we so constantly belaboured and turned over and over were never etherealized into thought our thoughts on the contrary were fast becoming cloddish our labour symbolized nothing and left us mentally sluggish in the dusk of the evening intellectual activity is incompatible with any large amount of bodily exercise the yeoman and the scholar the yeoman and the man of finest moral culture though not the man of sturdiest sense and integrity are two distinct individuals and can never be melted or welded into one substance i had already begun to suspect that hollingsworth like many other illustrious prophets reformers and philanthropists was likely to make at least two proselytes among the women to one among the men shrewd yankee observer how comes it that he did not look oftener into the face of things with this wise smile and so turn his marvellous lucidity of language to the great end of understanding life instead of making a spurious romance of italy the marble faun is the most obviously factitious of hawthorne's books its defect is dual in the selection of material with which he was not perfectly in sympathy and in unsureness of workmanship uncertainty of tone a very grave fault for hawthorne whose writing is elsewhere so sound and well managed in his other long romances and his many exquisite short tales hawthorne's supreme excellence lies in his ability to suggest a mood or a colour and keep the reader wholly under the spell of it the marble fawn falters and breaks its own illusions the country the actual scenery where the story is laid calls out to the tourist hawthorne to describe it and make comments on its history and its differences from his dear native land as a human being he cannot avoid this and so he polishes up his traveller's notes now he is a very honest man and his traveller's notes are the expression of disillusion the plain fact is he does not like italy though he is finely eloquent in describing a beautiful thing here and there on a basis of disillusioned romance and honest miscomprehension of the italian people and the ruins of history he erects a tragic plot which plays in and out among the studios of artists whose work he does not understand either aesthetically or humanly he is amazingly not at home in a scene which nevertheless has enough of the picturesque and the unfamiliar to excite him and suggest a story a competent master of romance he is puzzled by a romantic country and he inevitably wavers the conclusion of the marble fawn is a confession of impotence the story does not arrive the white innocence of hilda against a dark crime might be a strong motive but it is not the reason is that the crime is not convincing spooks and half-realized personages are the actors 
and hilda based as it were upon a cloud and all surrounded with misty substance is backed by substance of darker colour but quite as nebulous and that again is confounded with a deeper background which hawthorne the tourist dazedly looks upon and which the rest of us readers of literature if not tourists in italy have in our imaginations as a solid reality the fawn's transformation is no change in human character wrought by events for he does not start his life in hawthorne's book as a conceivable human man we cannot be tragically moved by the sin or the dark glances of miriam because we do not take her to our hearts as a suffering woman she is a ghost not an inch thicker for her dark eyes and her deep mysteries of soul the most interesting thing about the book to one who while reading the story for itself is at the same time interested to read nathaniel hawthorne is that it reveals him as a virginal naive imagination for all his literary sophistication shrinking from the obsolescence and decrepitude of rome and more likable and childlike than hilda herself the eternal city perplexed his simple poetic nature for painting and sculpture and the monuments of antiquity he had no real taste the personal shivers and aversions which creep into his story are quite the most human veracities in the book the fact is that imaginatively he does not believe in his own story so that in telling it he stammers charmingly has the fawn pointed ears concealed under his locks is any reader of great fiction even mildly interested in the answer the quasi-italian palaces and towers melt away while you are looking at them before they have fairly caught the eye to bring the matter to a violent contrast of merit a half-dozen of marion crawford's anglicized stories of italy are truer seeming italy and better stories than this work of the earlier american romancer except and the exception is greater than the main proposition except that hawthorne's invariable distinction of mind his luminous gift of style his fine cadences redeem all his material and make even his flimsiest book an exquisite pleasure for those who love english words hawthorne's earliest work and within its compass some of the best of his work is to be found in his short tales the minister's black veil the birthmark the great stone face ethan brand feathertop are the sort of stories that tell no story but create a condition of mind produce a mood every reader can remember the sensation of one of these tales but you will have difficulty in telling someone else what the tale is about hawthorne is a conjurer of moods a prose poet he stands alone in the literature of new england a verbal melodist without any ethical intention whatsoever a delicate detached artist as solitary in concord as poe was in new york symbolizing if he symbolizes anything not the puritan spirit but the spirit of beauty everlastingly hostile or indifferent to the crabbed austerities and the soul-killing morbidity of puritan ethics neither the philosophic library of emerson nor the polyglot anthology of longfellow announces so assuredly as the frail art of hawthorne that civilization has dawned upon the calvinistic barbarism of our colonial ancestors 
biographical note nathaniel hawthorne was born in salem massachusetts july fourth eighteen hundred and four he died at plymouth new hampshire may nineteenth eighteen sixty four the fact that his father and grandfather were sea captains is more important than that a remote ancestor was one of the judges in the salem witchcraft trials hawthorne if not hawthorne's biographers successfully outlived the judge he graduated at bowden college in eighteen twenty five a classmate of longfellow for some years after graduation he lived in seclusion trying his pen in eighteen thirty nine he was appointed to an obscure place in the boston custom-house he spent the year eighteen forty one to two at brook farm in eighteen forty two he married sophia peabody and settled for a while at the old manse in concord from eighteen forty six to eighteen forty nine he was surveyor at the salem custom-house thereafter he lived at lennox west newton and concord in eighteen fifty three he was appointed consul at liverpool by his college friend franklin pierce he held the post during pierce's administration and then travelled in europe for three years he spent the rest of his life at concord his works are fanshawe eighteen twenty eight twice told tales eighteen thirty seven grandfather's chair eighteen forty one famous old people eighteen forty one liberty tree eighteen forty two biographical stories for children eighteen forty two twice told tales with additions eighteen forty two mosses from an old manse eighteen forty six the scarlet letter eighteen fifty true stories eighteen fifty one the house of the seven gables eighteen fifty one a wonder book eighteen fifty one the snow image etc eighteen fifty one the blithedale romance eighteen fifty two tanglewood tales eighteen fifty three the marble fawn eighteen sixty our old home eighteen sixty three passages from american notebooks eighteen sixty eight passages from english notebooks eighteen seventy passages from french and italian notebooks eighteen seventy one septimius felton eighteen seventy one the dolliver romance eighteen seventy six dr grimshaw's secret eighteen eighty three nathaniel hawthorne and his wife by julian hawthorne contains all the essential biographical matter a good literary biography is a study of hawthorne by g p lathrop the life by henry james in english men of letters is a very distinguished piece of work by one of the best critical minds of our time the life by g e woodbury in american men of letters is excellent end of section six